Hi, everyone. My name's Cindy, and I am a grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. And uh, I love alcoholics. That's bottom line. I do love alcoholics. <laughs> Drinking or sober, I love alcoholics. <laughs> and they help get me here. And uh, I want to thank Judy for asking us. This has been uh, – it's always a gift to get to go anywhere with my family today and to come to my family with my family, you know. And that's the way I look at it. I'm just going – to visit family with family in a whole different way than I was raised with, that's for sure. And uh, you're the family that helps keep me sane. Uh, not, uh, you know, and that wasn't the way it was growing up in my home. Um, it's hard when you're the last one in the family to share the story because I'm now I feel like my job is to try to fill in the gaps. <laughs> Half my story's been told, if not three fourths, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, you know, John really said it when, uh, you know, this is representing what family family recovery is, uh, good, bad, or otherwise. You know, um, the message hopefully is that we can come the distance and, and, uh, and be a family today and carry some kind of message that this thing does work as long as you stay put and don't run. And uh, thank goodness for the sponsorship we've been given because running is not an option when things are getting rough. You know, and I can mentally run. And I do a lot of times. I go in that dark hole inside my head where I'm just sitting on the kitchen floor rocking, you know, back and forth, and they could just put me away any minute, you know. And I've had those kind of surrenders that have brought me to that place. I've had to get one more time just totally honest with a sponsor home group and uh, and just uh, get humbled enough to keep asking for help and for my God to keep walking me through the things I need to walk through and, and get closer to him. And that's, that's the bottom line of what this is all about anyway is, is getting that higher power in our life. And I'm like, John, I don't hear it. Uh, God has never spoke through the ceiling to me. Um, I used to speak up at, hey, how about dropping a money tree in my apartment right about now would be good, and it never happened. So, you know, stuff like that led me to believe there just wasn't any hope, and I didn't do the things they told me to do in that uh, religion that I was raised in. I had a lot of mixed messages growing up. I had uh, my dad that's a drunk, uh, my mother who, who went through the Mormon religion, married a drunk, uh, the guilt of that, you know, figured she excommunicated herself. They didn't have to do that for her, boy. You just don't, you know, talk how to smoke cigarettes. And, you know, she was at the same time, though, wanting her kids to have that. And she tried real hard with all three of us. I was the only one that it took to for just a little while because my best friend was the family down the street that she wanted me to go to church with. And, I, you know, every Sunday I'd try to go with the Pasket family, nice Pasket family down the street. And, and I was their adopted child, you know. But the thing that that religion never taught me was how do I go home and deal with my alcoholic father? How do I even tell these people, my dad's a drunk, you know? I'm not going to sit in Sunday school and talk about that. You know, you just don't. You can't say that stuff out loud. And that doesn't mean that religion isn't good for some people. But what it did for me was it made me know that this was just another place where I could not tell anybody what was really going on in my home. And if anything else, it also made me feel that much more guilty because, see, they have it all together, but I don't. And, and it's obvious because I have to come with this other family because my family isn't all together like them. We're a broken puzzle is what we are, and I'm just one of the pieces of that broken puzzle and uh, not knowing how to put it together. And uh, I can remember um, 
I got a lot of good moral values from that church, though, so I can't, I don't knock that religion down completely in that sense. What I know is it gave me basic sound moral things to live by, that by the time I had uh, involved myself with enough drunks, all the morals that that nice church tried to teach me just went right out the window, you know, and uh, I knew it was wrong. Most of the stuff I was doing was wrong, and yet uh, I couldn't change it, see, because I just got to have him. And I know that I'll feel just better. I talked about the, you know, all the, the, the guys, and it was like I graduated from high school with degrees in boys, and that's why I almost didn't graduate. You know, I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, it was much more fun to ditch and, and go find out where the boys are at the parties. And so that was my thing, you know, and uh, you know, backing up a little bit. Um, I don't know why my sister and my brother don't seem to be affected by this disease like I had to be affected by this disease. And that's okay. It's, uh, I don't try to figure that out today. They just seem to be um, pretty much okay with whatever they're doing or not doing. Um, but I'm the one that uh, I went to the point where most mornings I'd, I'd look over at the drunk and I'd think, I don't want to wake up anymore. You know, I don't want to wake up. Why didn't God just take me in my sleep? Why can't I just mysterious eye in my sleep without even taking anything so I don't have to face this anymore because I don't want to live like it? You know, I don't want to live like that anymore. And I can remember looking for that in, in best girlfriends. I couldn't have more than one girlfriend. There was that security of, you're my best girlfriend. I will not share with you with anybody else, you know. Um, and so when the third party would come into that relationship, it was time for me to back off because I'm not worthy enough anyway. And, and she'll pick her over me anyway, so I back off. And then by the time I had discovered boys, the girlfriend relationships were not that important anymore unless they got me to the boy. Which that you know, my girlfriend Cindy McClure in high school, boy, she did that. She was the she was everything I was supposed to look like. She looked good on the outside. She seemed to feel good on the inside, and she portrayed that, you know. And I wanted to be like her. And she wasn't too tall. She was just the right height. She didn't have naturally curly hair like me. It was straight and it was blonde. And she looked like the surfer we were all trying to be. You know, I'm Southern California born and raised. In my era, you were supposed to have blonde, long, straight hair parted down the middle. And uh, and if you were a white girl, you were supposed to be hanging with the surfers, quote. You know, and that's what we were trying to do, be surfer girls. And uh, never saw a surfboard. Well, I seen one on the beach one time. But, <laughs> you know, um, I would never want to get on one. But we had the Southern California tans, and, and we did all the other stuff that went along with that. And by the time I got into high school, that meant a whole lot of parties if you were hanging around with the popular people. And see, I'm not that by myself. I cannot be that. Um, I'm totally opposite of that. I'm the scared little kid in the corner of the room that's closest to the back door of that classroom. And hope like hell you do not call on me to come up and read or say anything because I'll just die. I know I will. I'll just die from the fright. And uh, it's like, you know, we're talking about the fear. I still have fear in my life today. But it, most of the time, if I'm close to my God, it doesn't overwhelm me used to. It doesn't keep me stuck in one place where I can't do anything at all. This program's given me that ability to, to be able to know that there's, there's the unknown and there's faith in the unknown today. And I didn't have that before. I got stuck and stayed hunkered down in this spot all the time with just waiting for the next guy to come along and be the one. That'll make it all better inside, you know, for some reason. You know, and uh, and I look for that through, uh, you know, look for men in all the wrong places, you know, my song. And uh, 
like I said, my brother and sister, uh, the the thing I remember probably more about growing up with um, with my brother, he was the younger brother, and I'm the oldest of three. That was another thing God did to me. I hate responsibility. And when you're the oldest, constantly you have mom and dad saying, you should have known better. You're the oldest, you know. And so right away it's like I'm guilty, you know. And I'm thinking, now how come I couldn't be the baby of the family? My sister got to be the baby, you know. And I mean, I'm, I'm five years old thinking about all these resentments I already got going on. And Nancy Tape across the street got it made. She does. She's got everything. She looks like Barbie. She's got Barbies. You know, she's got the Barbie bed. She looks, you know, like everything you see out of, you know, Better Homes and Gardens, you know, little girl's room. And, and she had all this stuff. And her mom was there for softball with her and all this other stuff. You know what I did? I judged that by her outsides. I totally judged what she had going by her outsides. I thought she had it made. And it wasn't too many years into this program when I got news that that so-called normal family I saw growing up, you know, the daddy was a drunk all those years and nobody ever knew. We certainly didn't. Ours seemed to stick out like a sore thumb to me. But who would have known because everything looked so right. And I envied that situation. I envied her situation. And, uh, you know, they ended up in a car crash. And my heart went out because it was the first time I realized that I no longer was jealous of her. And I was immediately filled with compassion. As somebody I lived my whole life until men got my life of being jealous of her, thinking she had it made. You know, thank goodness for the steps of this program. Um, when I got out of high school, I married a nutso man. Um, <laughs> and I say that because this man did not drink or use. Um, from all appearances, he seemed to be okay. Uh, I know that I watched my mom growing up in that home more than I watched my dad because, see, my daddy was fun. And I was Daddy's little girl most of the time when he was home. And I didn't know I was my favorite. Now, that bothered me to a certain extent because my dad only had one son, and I thought he should treat him better. And so every time my brother got yelled at, you know, when my dad was waking up from a what we thought waking up from a nap, and my brother would come in off of his bicycle, come running through the house, he's going to grab another toy or something or grab some change to go get some soda pop at the store with his friends and my dad would stop him and say, you know, it's like you're good for nothing. You know, what about the lawn? You think life is all about playing? And he would just start reaming on him. And I'd stand back and I'd start crying for him. My God, you know. I mean, that those feelings of, of those Al-Anon feelings were there from early on. And I really did. I, I really felt for my brother because it didn't make sense that my dad should be treating him like that. And I, I thought, why doesn't he yell at me? I could take it. Go ahead and yell at me. I can take it. But I knew my brother must be dying inside to be getting that from his dad. And uh, and what kind of example is that going to be for my brother? And I knew my brother was going to end up just like him if my dad kept it up. I had that feeling he was going to end up just like him. And, uh, you know, so I don't know why they weren't affected like I was. But uh, I don't have to figure that out today. I'm glad there was an answer for me when I was ready to get here. I'm glad there was an answer. Um, but this uh, guy down the street, there, there was another, you know, a uh, Mormon family that was the perfect Mormon family, or so I thought. And But he was the black sheep of the family, and I never saw him. It dawned on me I'd never really seen this guy growing up. You always heard about him, but you never saw him. And uh, and his own mother tried to warn me not to go out with him. Now, you know, that should be a really good clue. The, kid, the guy's own mother told me, I don't think you want to do this. And I thought, now, why would she say that, you know? 
And, um, I, I mean, that's the story of my life. I have always had blinders on. I've met drunks in AA meetings and still wanted to think they were okay. You know, I mean, they're raising their hand as newcomers. And it's like, oh, you can't be. You can't be an alcoholic. You look too good, you know. And so I judged life a lot by people's outsides and what they looked like. And, um, I went into that relationship and, and tried to get out with my life because uh, he liked playing with guns. And like I said, he never took anything, nothing, never, never drank, never used. And yet I'm more afraid of that kind of insanity today than I ever was a drunk. And I'm grateful because I had taken the second step. And I am afraid of that kind of insanity today, very afraid of it. But uh, what I knew from a fifth step is, and the only reason I even share that, because that fifth step showed me that I am attracted to sick people. Men in general, I'm attracted to sick men. They don't even got a drink or use. He had all the characteristics. It just wasn't happening. And that's what made him boring to me, even with the, the threat of if you leave, I'll shoot you. If you leave, I might shoot both of us. If I find you with anybody or if you try to get pregnant. And that was another thing I had agreed upon because my self-worth was so low that by the first date I had agreed to never having kids with this man if we ever got married. Now we're on our first date. That should have been another thing that should have scared me. Now, if we should ever get married, we're on a first date, you know, we've done anything. And if we should ever get married, you'll ne- you need to know this up front. There will be no kids. And he, he hated his own childhood. That's what I got to find out. At two years old, he wanted to be dead. And there were a lot of things I found out about him that said that things were not right with him. And I thought he'd be a lot better if he did drink, but that's beside the point. Um, and I did a lot of things in that relationship to try to get me out the door without people saying, because I was so afraid what people would say, without them pointing the finger and saying, it's her, it was her fault. You know, if it hadn't have been for her, it wouldn't have been, uh, it wouldn't have broke up. If it hadn't have been for her. And see, I tried to sabotage that in all the ways I could without losing my life. And I finally, uh, my mom helped me get out of that relationship because she was afraid for my life at that point, too. And uh, by that time, it was makeup time, and I went out and I started partying, and I was partying with guys that were four and five years younger, because after all, I'm a divorcee now, and I thought that meant something, that they would appreciate an older woman. And I'm really 12 inside, you know, I'm just 12 years old at that. So I um, I went out there and started trying to make up for lost time. And uh, I can remember thing that uh, that I always did was I'd get to the, the relationship would get to the point where One more time, I was competing with booze and drugs. And if it was a woman, I could beat it up. But how do you beat up a bottle of booze? I can't. I can't get them to see what they're doing. And I remember this this one relationship, and I always left one drunk for another, not knowing. I mean, this guy is drinking and using, is bothering me. And so I've already got one over here that I think is going to be okay, and I've got to know that there's that before I leave this. Because, see, I don't think that I'm okay by myself. I can't possibly be by myself. It'll scare the hell out of me. And I can remember uh, having this, this guy's parents looking out their kitchen window into their backyard where I had taken the calendar that had my uh, computerized picture on it that I'd given him for Valentine's Day that he didn't appreciate anymore because he was going out with his best friend drinking and using that night. And I thought he should just stay home with me. I should be enough. I should be enough. So I sat in their backyard, and I torched it, and I watched it burn. And I remember looking up at those people's faces, looking out in their own backyard at what this woman, who's five years older than their son, is doing in their backyard. And we don't have a problem, do we? (laughs) I don't have to drink and use to do those things today. That's what I know. 
I was just nuts. I was just nuts. And I remember looking up, and for that split second, I could see the look in their eyes, and the next second, I justified the whole thing. Don't look at me that way. It is your son's fault that has driven me to this place where I have been forced to do this. And that's the way I always, I always blamed it on somebody else. It was always somebody else's fault. I blamed all my actions on somebody else. The drunk that got me here, my dad had finally decided to get sober, and he was in a, another 30-day program. He had been in a couple before, so that's why I did not believe that would work. Um, my mom had already uh, divorced him by then. I thought he had it made. He, bar- he married the barmaid. I thought, now she's going to understand. I won't have to worry about him anymore. And I really did. I thought that was a match made up. The woman has already been serving him drinks for God knows how long. She knows what she's dealing with, right? Uh-uh. Now, in fact, we think she might have had a problem, too, but she never claimed that she was alcoholic. But the fight would be on, and then she'd call me, and it was like, I'm supposed to come. I threw your father's stuff out on the lawn one more time, and I'd be like, oh, come my brother. You know, I mean, I can't deal with this stuff, you know. And I'd convince her to call my brother, who I felt was stronger, and he's the man. He should take care of it. You see, I don't want to be the responsible older daughter in any sort of way, shape, or form. I was not going to go and rescue anybody. That wasn't my thing because I'm a victim, too. Thank you very much. (laughs) Because somebody come save me, you know. (laughs) To heck with him. And, um, And yet I was dying just a little bit more each time that pretty soon I had doctors calling me. And they had, uh, I don't know why they got my number, but they would call me and they'd say, you need to let us know more about why your dad is in the emergency room right now. Uh, he's, his head is split open. He's fallen off of a roof. And I hated those calls. I hated those calls. I hated that they were calling me to tell me that stuff because they don't want to pretend that it was going to be okay. I didn't want to know that my dad was probably going to die an alcoholic death because I always figured that he probably would. And it scared me to death when I'd get those calls. And I just, I would yell back at these doctors on the phone, what is wrong with you? Don't you know he's an alcoholic? I kept thinking, why can't they figure that out? They think he's just mysteriously fallen off of roofs and stuff, that he keeps having these accidents. He's bleeding internally by accident. I didn't know what was wrong with them. But it was my job to tell them. And I did. And I did. You know, and he got into that program. The the pressure was on by my sister mostly. She said, you know, we need to go down to this AA meeting thing that Dad's going to in this facility, and he wants us to be there and support him. And, uh, you know, the only thing I knew about AA was something on the TV that I saw a couple times. Uh, alcoholics were in L.A. on Skid Row. And that's it. You know, I mean, that was what it was. And and then they, you know, they bang tambourines and they get you in the door and, you know, they <laughs> they get sober or something, I guess. I didn't know. And, um I didn't think it was going to work anyway, but you know what? That night, that boyfriend had just made me mad anyway, and I, I just, you know, couldn't get my way, so it seemed like a good idea at the time. Why not? Why not? I got nothing better to do tonight. I'm mad at him. I go down there with my sister and uh, and her husband, and we sit in that meeting, and there he was. There he was, my next victim, right across the room, and, you know, nothing but burnout winos like my dad, and boy, I, I spotted him just like that, and, you know, blinders were on one more time. He's raising his hand as a newcomer, right? I'm Jeff. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm thinking, no, you're not. Ah, Look at you. You look good. You're young. You dress nicely. You're smoking a pipe. Very sophisticated. I was really. You look like you might come from some money. Summed it all up in about five seconds. And money would be different, too. I was usually the sugar mama that was trying to make us, you know, both hold it together financially and uh, buying their booze for them or their drugs for them. So this was different. You know, I thought this is really different. 
And, uh, you know, there should have been a clue, but it wasn't. My dad even called me the next day to warn me that that guy had escaped through the vent in the middle of the night with another friend, you know, and I, I just want to warn you about him because I know, you know, you told me it was okay to give your number to him, and, and he was calling my dad dad by the end of the night. Now, you know, normal women would find that a little bit scary, I think, you know, <laughs> or even a little bit insulted, like, who does he think he is? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I would just, I fell in love. I always fell in love fast. And uh, I was not a good one-night stand. I usually tried to hunt him down and kill him the next day. But I didn't carry weapons, so, I mean, I mentally hunt him down and kill him. And uh, I only chased a few down. But uh, I tried to find them and get them to see my way. That What is wrong that you did not call me the next day? You know, I am not like that. But my actions all said I was. I found that out in an inventory. But, see, I had good intentions going into all those relationships, don't you see? I'm not one of those girls. Well, I was. I just didn't charge it. Oh. <laughs> well, that's the only difference, you know. I became everything I, I grew up knowing was wrong. I did everything I knew was wrong. Uh, and I, I, knew that, uh, I knew that I was dying inside. But if I just kept in enough denial, it wouldn't kill me. It just wouldn't kill me. And I could just continue one foot in front of the other, looking for the right hymn until it came along. And uh, he went into a, a facility with my dad. And in order to keep him in there, uh, because I knew that he had a drinking problem, he suggested I bring drugs every weekend into that facility, county facility, and it wasn't locked down, but if you walk out the gates, they call the cops on you right away, so it might as well be. It's an act in California, and I, we joked that they were on the family plan together. And uh, so I started smuggling drugs into this county facility for him because I knew he needed them. And I have plans for us when he gets out. So he's got to fly straight and narrow. And this was my thinking that he would be as long as he, everybody needs a little something, don't they? I mean, I always drink and used along with an alcoholic. And, and in fact, when I got here, I was afraid that I might be. And I remember throwing a free trunk log in with my four-step to my sponsor that day. And uh, she didn't realize when was the last time you had a drink? And I said, well, you told me that you don't sponsor Al-Anons who drink and use anymore. And she said, that's right. And I said, well, then that's when I stopped, when, I, when you became my sponsor that day. And she said, I don't think you've got a problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the alcoholics don't just walk into Al-Anon and stop drinking. You know, it just doesn't happen that I know of. And uh, so what I know today is the only way I can describe that, because I, I did a lot of that out there, and yet it got to the end of that relationship where I knew that I couldn't even martyr that anymore. I could not, uh, uh, I didn't find much fun in it anymore. I didn't find much fun in it at all. It was, it was killing the person that I loved. It was killed a lot of people in my life that I, that I loved. And I thought, this is, you know, this is the drink. This is the man over here. And I will go for him every time. I'll go for the man every time. Because that, that drink wasn't that important. It seemed to be always connected to man is what I found out. That's all. But I'll, I'll go for him because he is my drink of choice and he is my drug of choice. And uh, so he got that facility, you know, with no help from me, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the gifts I get to do, John talked about the service work. And, and uh, one of the gifts I get to go on is a, a panel that my uh, sponsor started up in a prison. That uh, prison panel has been one of the things that... Uh, I get so grateful because they let me go out after I share on that panel. You know what I mean? They could lock me up, but they don't. And, uh, in fact, I was afraid of that when I first went in, and they said they couldn't uh, couldn't get me for any of the past stuff, you know, that there's laws against that too. And, but I thought, my God, for the grace of God, there go I, because I belong there. I belong there because of women, you know, like Leslie Van Houten that couldn't say no. 
when they asked her why she did what she did, because she couldn't say no to a man. Thank God I just didn't run into any Charlie Mansons out there. Thank God, because I don't know. I don't know today. What I know is that was always my thing, was I could not say no to a man, and I'll do whatever it takes to keep him in my life, even if that means killing somebody else or myself, whatever it takes. And then if that doesn't work, move on to the next one. Move on to the next one. You know. And uh, the bottom happened for me was uh, when we moved in together in a blackout one night, he wrote a note and said, do yourself a favor and go to Al-Anon. I hate to see you going crazy. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, uh, I'm the crazy one? Yeah, right. You're the crazy one. And I was, you know, part of me was totally insulted by the whole thing that he should call me crazy. And um, I wasn't crazy. I could tell you what color underwear he had on that morning. I could tell you whether it was dirty or clean. I could tell you uh, how many times he puked that morning. I could tell you everything about him. And I'd get to work some days, and I wasn't even sure if I'd brushed my teeth. When was the last time I took a shower? <laughs> now, Lenons don't have problems, see. But that's how far it took me. And I had those thoughts of, I'm afraid I'm losing it. <laughs> and that scared me more than anything else, was I was really afraid I was mentally losing it at that point. And I, I went to see how to get him sober, because I thought that's what Al-Anon was. It was, uh, I thought they'd kick me out, though, because it said it was, you know, family groups. And I thought that meant I had to call my mother and try to convince her to come, you know. And my mom's not real fond of my dad even today, okay? So I knew I wasn't going to convince her of nothing. And my brother, no, he's, he's still dealing it, I think. <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, he's got his drugs to sell at that point. I'm not convincing him of anything. And my sister, she's born again, you know, so... I think I'm by myself, you know, and I, I went to that meeting by myself, and, and they didn't kick me out, and I found out that they, I didn't have to bring my whole family, you know, that's not what it meant, and uh, I remember sitting there, and the pamphlet that stood out to me so much that night was understanding ourselves, and I finally had that feeling for the first time in my life that somebody understood how I felt, and had actually lived my life through that pamphlet, and I thought, you know, these people know, they do know, and it's like the drunk talks about one drunk talking to another, and uh, walking in my moccasins, you know, and uh, we've all heard those little stories. And, and Al-Anon, I think it's no different. Uh, thank goodness for financial insecurity, because I did not have money to go to a counselor. There were no other options for me. I knew Al-Anon was free, you know, and I went. And uh, I went to about six meetings. He didn't get sober. You didn't give me the magic potion at the end of those six meetings that you told me to keep trying, you know, until I made that decision. So at the end of six meetings, uh, I did not get my magic potion to get him sober, so I stopped going. And I don't know why, but there, I thought there was really this this uh, little paragraph that I would take home and read to him that night where he would just say, that's it, thank you, I want to get sober tonight and run out and get sober. I don't know why. I thought it, you know, we always think it's something we've said or not said, done or not done. Uh, the hair color, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's what I'm wearing. I don't know. Maybe we should live someplace else. Maybe I need a different job. Maybe he needs one. Well, I got him a job because he didn't need one. That didn't work either <laughs> because now I, my only safe place was no longer safe, and people that I worked with was what thank goodness helped get me back to the program because uh, we had to do a geographical during that time, and we got closer to my family. Something told me that that would make a difference because my mom really liked him, you know, and I thought maybe if he's closer to my family and my sister and her kids and all this, you know, it'll be different. Well, it got different all right. It got worse, and there was no hiding him anymore, not in front of my family. And I remember my mom saying, God, Cindy, I hate to see you doing this one more time. See, my mom's answer was divorce with dad. My mom has never found this program. My mom's not a very happy person today. She lives by herself. She says it's just fine with her. But what I know is 
She's afraid to ever take the risk of ever getting another relationship because, as she puts it, if I want another one, I'll just go down to the local bar and get one. Don't want one. <laughs> and that, you know, end of story for her. And I get to let her do that. I get to leave her alone with that. And uh, what I know is once I got here, my mom was grateful for physical things that she saw different with me. She saw that I no longer took the same ulcer medication that she did. I no longer took those tranquilizers because I was just a bundle of nerves. And I had rashes that they, they didn't know what to call them anymore. So they called them nerve rashes. They figured I was a nervous wreck. I had ulcers, that scar tissue that dated back to when I was about four years old. Now, how do you, at a teenager, sit in a doctor's office with ulcers that are almost bleeding, have a doctor look at you and say, what could a four-year-old possibly be that upset about? How do you tell them? You can't. I couldn't tell them. And I'd just say, I don't know. I guess I'm just nervous like my mother. And when you say stuff like that, doctors will give you the thing that you really want. And then when they get suspicious, I move on to the next one. I believe what's waiting out there for me is probably pills more than anything else. Because, see, my mom goes to sleep on that pill. Still tonight, she will go to sleep on that pill because she believes that she needs it to get her to sleep, see. And I believed I need it when he was really driving me crazy. I just need to calm down just a bit, you know. And I, would, I had myself psyched into that from... 16 years old when she cut that thing in half, gave me just a half and said, you're such a nervous wreck and this is your first date. I don't want to see you falling apart and you probably will. And she gave that to me and so pretty soon, you know what kids do? It's no different than in the schools today. Five years old, they're trying to tell me my kid needs Redlin. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Not in our home, but I didn't tell them that part. What I said to them was, because you, there's some things you just can't tell to normal people, they said, you know, your kid is smart as can be, but he can't seem to sit still in his chair. He wants to do things in the back of the room some days, like do the worm, you know, and have all the kids laughing at him and, and be the class clown. And we feel that maybe he's got an attention problem. I'm thinking, you bet he does. He comes out of our home. My God. <laughs> and I got to say, you know what? We are seeking outside help, but thank you. And I appreciate that you're paying attention. What I really wanted to say was, you know, but I didn't. And what I know today is that that is unfortunately an answer. It's an answer for a lot of, uh, a lot of schools, an answer for a lot of teachers because we're cramming 35, 40 kids in the classroom. And by God, if you can just keep the really rowdy ones medicated, you don't have to deal with them. They'll just sit still and mellow out, right? Yeah, I understand mellowing out. I had to take something to just mellow out sometimes because the alcoholic was driving me. And you know what? I'm grateful for the program of Valentine because you start doing something like that. And my cousin is, or my nephew, my sister's two kids were raised in that religious home. And, uh, you know, we were the real oddballs in the family, let me tell you. And especially, you know, I call my mother up one day to tell her I'm marrying an alcoholic. And she really knows I'm crazy now. Didn't they teach you anything at those meetings? How to stay away from them? <laughs> that was her response to that whole thing. <laughs> you know, and... You know, she just knows I've lost it by that point. But what I know is, um, you know, the program has taught me enough to get my kid help right away. But uh, my sister's kids, they were raised in that. And uh, and that doesn't mean that was good or bad or otherwise. But, you know, they were seemingly perfect. And we were the weird ones. And we couldn't show up for any of the family functions. Shame on us. And pretty soon, my nephew has a little problem because they tried to get him off the Redland by the time he, he had it from five until he was about 16 years old. And you take a kid that's been told that he isn't okay without a pill and take him off of that. He's on street drugs. 
in a matter of days. And he's climbing out of classroom windows and just leaving, just leaving. And if you ask him why, he doesn't know, you know. And so they put him in Christian concentration camp, you know, that cost him 300 bucks a month over the summer. And for whatever reason, he seems to be doing real good right now, and I'm grateful for that. I don't think everybody ends up, don't get me wrong, I don't think everybody has to Al-Anon and AA. But I know I did. I know my family does. And that's all I have to know. And my niece right now is going through that, and she's 16 years old. And she's just kind of following in her brother's footsteps right now. But God damn it, you know, pay attention to your kids with this. There's so many people who want to say, this kid's got a problem, let's put him on medication. Half the Al-Anon newcomers that walk into my home group are loaded. See, because you need some Prozac. If you go to the right people, they'll tell you that stuff. You need a little Prozac, see, because you're paying me $10,000. I've got to put a label on you, number one, and then I've got to give you the pills that fit the label. When all it is most of the time is the disease of alcoholism, if it be somebody like me, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the, the home group I have because the Al-Anons that uh, I've grown up with and sponsorship in my program in my home group does not believe in medication and does not believe in, uh, in drinking. We just don't drink, you know. We don't drink. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and I think I've forgotten to mention that my home group is the Tuesday night. Uh, Fullerton meeting that meets in Anaheim now, and we are called Gotta Wanna because you gotta wanna work a program, and you gotta wanna work the steps. And uh, got that out of the Forum magazine, so it's not real profound. But when we saw it, we thought, wow, we grabbed it. You know, what a great name for a home group, Gotta Wanna. And uh, and I love that home group today. Absolutely love it. And I know that uh, God puts sick people like me right in the middle of the answer because somebody as scared as I was, I would have avoided it and I would have run the other way and they they stuck a little wimpy thing like me right in the middle of the answer so that I could get better and I'm so grateful for that. Uh after a New Year's Eve party, I knew that I had to go back to Al-Anon because everybody I worked with saw him in all his glory and I was embarrassed to death. And so I went back and I thought maybe for some reason I'll hear something different and I did. I started hearing people talking about sponsorship and that doesn't mean they didn't the first time but I couldn't hear it. I didn't hear anything about sponsorship. I didn't know how, I, if I felt a little bit good in a meeting, now how do I go home and feel that way? How do I walk in the door and not give him one of those looks again? Because see, he may be passed out or he may not be when I get home, and I don't know for sure. He may have taken one of those walks where I, he, he doesn't have a car, I have the car. But if he's taken one of those walks, he'll get picked up for drunk uh, walking, possibly. That's happened, too. He got picked up for drunk everything, you know, that you can drunk... Drunk doing the laundry, you know. I mean, you know, people knew there was a problem in my home mostly because of me and my mouth, you know. And you know what? He could look good on any given day walking into that uh, that job. And he put it on a three-piece suit after barfing his guts up all morning long. The owner of the company did not even wear a three-piece suit. And he could look like he owned the place. And then there was me. You know, I was moping behind him, a few spaces behind him, with my head down, and my eyes were swollen shut because I'd been crying all night long, and I'd been watching him all night long. And uh, I don't wear makeup anymore because, see, he doesn't care, so why should I anyway? It doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, and poor me. And people watched that. That's what they saw. They didn't see this guy was drunk half the time he was at work. But they'd look at me and know there was a problem. And I had many people come into my office and say, what's going on? And I'd just cry and say, we're just having problems, that's all. Because how do you tell them that the guy you just convinced them to hire because you need money is a drunk? 
and he probably will mess up the business within a month's time if they keep him there long enough. The good news is the feds came and got him instead. Because by then I'd got, I, you know, plain clothesmen came and they knew they didn't want him to come back anymore. And that was a good thing. But I started going back. And when I heard sponsorship, that word sounded like an E.F. Hutton commercial to me. It just did. Somebody said the word sponsor and the whole room seemed to get quiet. And this is the way I thought. The whole room just got really hush. And it was like, we were, I sat there thinking, what did your sponsor say? So what did she say? Tell us, you know. And I was just, I was ready to hear what she said. And then the next one would share and say, and I got direction from my sponsor. And my sponsor helped me look at choices and helped me make a decision that I needed to make that I couldn't even see that there was choice number C or letter C or the third item over here that I couldn't see at the time. And I just, be, I was starving for it and didn't even, and I got a sponsor. And I was so grateful for the leader of that meeting that night because when I asked about this thing called sponsorship, she could have pointed at anybody in that room, and she pointed at the lady that became my sponsor and is still my sponsor today. And I took one look at her, and I thought, yeah, I want everything she's got. She looked like Mrs. T. She had jewelry from head to toe and uh, and a fur coat and, I mean, did not look like she belonged in that neighborhood whatsoever, you know. And uh, I just thought, man, I saw somebody that looked that good, and it baffled me. It baffled me how you could possibly look like that if you've been living with a drunk like I have. You know, and I, when I heard her story, uh, I realized that I was a member of Al-Anon just like she was a member of Al-Anon. And that our stories are our own bottoms that get us here. And it's not to be compared sometimes, you know, that the pain I had to go through was mine, you know, and the pain she had to go through was hers. But what an example that was right in front of me. What an example. If she could go through that kind of hell, then maybe somebody like me that's got a chance at this thing. Maybe I've got a chance. And I got, uh, you know, I had strong sponsorship from day one. I have a sponsor that, I, the sponsorship I had and, the, and the, the long timers in the group were the kind that said, sit down in the front row because you'll hear better. Take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth, you know, get in the car. If you got to ask why, you must not want to go, you know, and stuff like that. And, I mean, they were not nice to us. <laughs> And once you get a sponsor, all of a sudden they go from nice to mean, you know. And uh, and I'm so grateful for that because today I know if I hadn't gotten it the way I got it, I might not still be here today. And uh got to start working the steps of this program. And what a gift. What a gift of freedom for people that come from the kind of hell we did. You know, my hell was on earth. You know, I don't know of any other hell but the one I went through, and it was on earth. And I don't even, uh, you know, want to experience another one like that, you know, and uh I got to find out that religion worked for those people in my family. It worked for different people I knew because they were looking for religion. And I was I was the bad girl thinking I needed to get good. And I was just a sick person who needed to get, to get well. And that religion wasn't the thing that was going to fix me. It ended up being my religion when I came to this program. It ended up being the religion of Al-Anon. And that's the way I look at it. This is my church today. And this is my family. And, and it's the thing that has found a higher power in my life that is something bigger and, and more loving than I could have ever imagined because I made such a bad one out there. He was after me. He was a puppet master running me into one drunk after another just like this. And I thought that's what he was doing to me, you know. And I blame my whole life on circumstances like that. It's, it's got to be his fault. He did it to me. When I met uh, John, our sponsors were uh, married to each other. They still are today. And like he was saying, I mean, they were such an example of recovery in this program. 
what I met, uh, we were only in the program a few months, I think, and I remember being over her house one day and saw him, and, and you know, the day that he moved us, uh, oh, my God, the day he moved me, um, I was baffled why young guys were sober. First of all, that looked so strange to me because I'm 28 years old, and some of them are just about that same age, give or take a few years one direction or the other. But to see these young guys sober was baffling. And I thought, you know, they say that we're attracted, and I've got this sticker on my head that says, you know, alcoholic attached here. You know, I thought, where is the hope in that? I might as well just join Al-Anon and become a virgin all over again. So I joined the convent at Al-Anon, and that's the way I looked at it. I really, my heart was broken too many times. Thank you. Don't care if I have another man in my life. You tell me what to do to just make the pain go away. That's all I want. I did not come here looking for another relationship. I did not think I ever wanted another relationship. I've already been down that road, see, and men don't work. That's right, men don't work. My sponsor said one time when my butt was really falling off and I had to do some writing and get honest about, you know, uh, one more time I'm not reaching out to a higher power. I'm trying to make John responsible in my life. And she said, Cindy, you forget to watch for the signs. you got to watch for the signs. I see signs in your life all the time of your God trying to talk to you, but you can't see them because you're not asking for them. And about that time we drove forward, you know, and a men work sign slapped itself right on the front end of my brand new car. <laughs> thanks, God. Thanks for the sign, you know. But uh, <laughs> men don't work anymore. And that's why, that's why the men in my life today are a gift. And they're not a necessity. And it's not something I have to have to make me okay. Because I had to become okay with Sponsor First, who helped lead me to a higher power. And through steps in the gift of this program and the principles gave me a God of my own understanding. And his name isn't John, Jim, George, or Ringo. You know, it just isn't. And I'm grateful for that, you know. And, uh, God, it's been a heck of a road. You know, John and Jonathan, like I said, they, they covered so many areas. New sobriety was crazy, you know. And we did sponsor each other a lot. I still, there was still that part of me. Um, I had moved into, uh, when he came over to move us that day, like I said, it was, um, um, it was weird to me to see them sober, and then uh, even weirder to go to an open AA meeting once a week. And that was part of my program, too. It was suggested that I, that I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 164 pages, because how can an Al-Anon possibly work the first step and understand what they're powerless over if they do not know what they're dealing with? And I firmly believe that today. The girls I sponsor come over to my house through my sponsor's example of having a big book study with the Al-Anon's newcomers in her life. And I still believe that today. Because I can forget. I can forget real easy. But when I'm sitting in a room full of new people and I'm listening to those wonderful newcomer questions and I just love them. I love them. It brings me right back there right now, you know, and I need that. I, and it helps keep me from complacency lest I ever forget. You know, John is a gift in my life today. Um, Jonathan even more so of a gift. And the funny thing was when I found out I was pregnant with Jonathan, you know, I thank you very much held out to the fourth date. I was not going to be anybody's blunt of a joke. Mm-mm. No, I heard about that. I heard about that one. So, um, and that was growth for me too. So that was that was real growth for me. And um, I really wanted to be something different. See, what I found out in that trip was I always thought that a man was going to fix it and was going to make me okay. And I, I I looked for that in the wrong thing, and it, it needed to be a higher power. And so I thought that they'll change if they love me enough. They'll change no matter what's going on. Good, 
do that for you if they love you enough. And I had to go into this relationship knowing what I was dealing with. And I love the idea that this man wanted to be alive more than anything. The writing that I got to do that I remember sharing with my sponsor before we got on our knees that day, if you don't think that's strange, I mean, to get on your knees with a man to pray, maybe for other things, but not to pray, not me, (laughs) not me. That was a a whole new concept to me. And um, But see, I'd already done that with a sponsor, with a third step and a seventh step prayer. I'd already done that with a sponsor, working those steps with her. And uh, what I knew was I had many choices of what I could do. And I looked at all of them because this wasn't his choice. This was not his responsibility. My sponsor made it plain and clear I needed to look at all my choices. And the thing that I wanted to give a chance and take a risk was I did not want to, I did not want to just uh, ignore the situation and, and hope that it was going to go away like I did the disease of alcoholism. And that if marriage was offered, I wanted to make a chance of it. And give it a go. And it ends up that Jonathan's name means gift from God. And see, I didn't know that when we picked out his name. I wanted it to be kind of like his dad's, but different, you know. And it means gift from God. And Jared, his, uh, my sponsor, we were trying to figure out names one day, and she came up with Jared. And she goes, what do you think of that name? And I go, I love it. It was like here I was trying to find a name, and I couldn't think of one. And she said it that day, and it just stuck. And it fit, and it felt strong and manly. And, and it ends up being descending from heaven. So I have my gifts from God, and they're both little angels. And the angel that I wear on my on my blouse today, this is something that's a gift from my sponsor, because I have a guardian angel, I call it a higher power, as long as I remember that he's in my life, and he only wants good for me today. And that these, these people in my life are gifts that they can go away at any time, should I forget what's necessary to help keep sobriety in my home. And see, that writing that I did, his sobriety was number one for him, but his sobriety was also number one in my writing. And my sponsor took one look at that. And she said, good for you. There may be a chance then. Because as long as you know that his sobriety has got to come first, there might be some hope. And they did marry us that, that weekend. And, and, you know, for $75 American and, you know, two Polaroid snapshots is what I remember and some plastic flowers. We got to get married. And I've had the best wedding there ever was. It meant more, you know, it meant more to me than anything else in the world. And, uh, you couldn't have bought it. You couldn't have, you couldn't have bought a better one, you know. And uh, to have eight Al-Anon friends around you that supported you. And you don't even, they don't even know what, if you're going to make it or not, you know. We had a lot of people betting against us. And they even say to our faces, long-timers that were saying, you know what, might as well marry them. They're just going to be drunk, you know, in a few weeks anyway. They're not going to be around next year anyway. <laughs> you know, and those are bad odds, <laughs> real bad odds. And that's something that, you know, it scared me enough for me to pay that much more attention to what I was going to have to do that I was not marrying somebody who was normal. I tried all my life to appear to have that normalcy, you know, with myself and other people, and I was never normal, you know. And I came in here, and I had to fight that again. I had to go through surrenders in the program that I did not do out there so far. I've had to do them in here. Most of the surrenders I've had to do have been in this program one way or the other. And uh, the difference is I didn't have to run because I had sponsorship, because I had a, a program, because of God. And the principles, you know, John talked about the preteens and the allateens, and sometimes I feel like I'm becoming one of those uh, speakers that gives an allateen pitch. But I, I love allateen because I know there's a chance kids today, and like John talked about breaking that chain, you know, I don't know which road Jonathan's going to have to go down, but what I do know is 
that we have forced our kids into the disease of alcoholism. Why do you have a problem with forcing your kids into recovery just because they don't want to go? That's what I don't get, okay? That's what I don't understand. And so whether he wants to or not, he gets to go. And the kids that have been forced to go to that meeting, I have seen just numerous cases of kids that have turned around. I had one lady, and, and I sponsored that little girl's mom. I sponsored that little girl, too, whose daddy died. Boy, you talk about being on the other end of something when a sponsor, he calls you up and says, I just got a call that, you know, the man I kicked out because he was threatening our lives with a shotgun, and he was still feeling a little bit guilty about kicking him out. You know, <laughs> he had died the alcoholic death, the ultimate alcoholic death, right in his own blood and his own puke, you know. And alone in an apartment. The worst thing that any Al-Anon would ever want to see for an alcoholic, too. And I'm on the other end of the line listening to it. And I thought, my God, what do you tell somebody? What I didn't tell her was things that I had not been through yet. I had not been there. I didn't have much to tell her. What I did was I led her to people that had been there and had done that and knew what that was like. And sponsor, I kept going back to my sponsor. Now what? Now what? What's the next indicated action with her? You know, because it would have been so easy for me to get so caught up in the problem with her that that's all I could see, too. And that little girl said that out loud that night. I knew she's got some hope now because, see, she won't even say it to me. Her phone calls her Mary Sunshine. She's my little Mary Sunshine, and she's never said it out loud, and I'm not going to force her to say that out loud. That's not my business. I'm not a shrink. That's not my business. But what I saw was when somebody that little is working with a newcomer, it still works. For her to say, my God, my daddy's dead too. She said out loud that night and walked over to her. She had that newcomer next to her in that meeting. And she was working with that newcomer. Raise your hand. It's time for the newcomer. Say, she's telling her all this stuff. And I can hear her from across the room. And I'm thinking, man, you work good, God. Because I can't do stuff like that. Not me. I can't do that. I can't make that happen in people's lives. And uh, lots of miracles. Another gal came into that meeting and, and had her son. He's eight years old, right below her. And, and he can hear everything she's saying. And she wanted to warn me about him before she dropped him off that night, that he was a very, very angry child. He's on a lot of different medications. He's been diagnosed as this, that, and the other thing. And I thought, yeah, well, we'll see, you know. And uh, she went into this big ordeal, and I'm thinking, this kid's standing right below her listening to all the things that's wrong with him, you know, listening to all of it. And what I did was when she was done, I looked down at him, I said, and I smiled, and I said, we're going to be okay, aren't we, Michael? And he looked up and he smiled at me and he said, okay, see, that's my God. My kid's saying stuff like that. Easy does it, Mom, when I'm about to fly off the handle because I'm going to be late for my meeting, you know. <laughs> me, 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 I, 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 I'm all into me one more time. And what I know is that if I'm listening, God speaks through those little kids a lot, you know. And that kid, within about two months' period of time, has gone from a kid that we did have to physically take him out of the meeting that night. We did not call his mom out. She didn't need it right now. She needs to be in a meeting herself. We didn't pull her out of the meeting. We took care of it. We had a big AA sponsor in there. I'm just one of four sponsors in that meeting because there's 20 to 25 preteens, and they age from four and a half years old to about 11 or 12. You know, And uh, took him out of the meeting long enough to sit on until he stopped being angry and then brought him back in, and he sat down nice and quiet. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, this is the disease of alcoholism. These are our kids. You know, we can say, you know, isn't he awful, isn't he bad, but take a look in the mirror. We've made him. So if we've, we've created what we think is the problem in our home, my solution for my children is Alateen. 
It's the programs of preteen and allotene. That's the solution that we present in our home today. And, uh, and by example, you know, and trying to be that example. And, uh, Jonathan's a real smart kid. He's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, everything he is is probably a lot of the things that I never was, you know, and I see him so courageous at five years old to be able to stand up in front of hundreds of people and I'm the scared kid in the back of the room, you know, and I look at that and think, wow, you know, <laughs> so, you know, you never know who you're going to hear things from and see things from and, uh, the gifts, the gifts that those kids have given me in that meeting are just fantastic. Um, I've got to wrap it up here real quick. That little three-year-old came along about two weeks before I turned 40. I didn't think that was very funny. <laughs> I, had, I was already three years into the age of life. I'd already had a doctor tell me that um, there was like that one in a million chance that the egg-stimulating hormone or whatever the heck all that stuff is, it, you know, is still there. So if you absolutely don't want to ever get pregnant again, you will have to take birth control. Well, he's our one in a million chance, three years into the change of life, no, home, no hormones left in my body. Out <laughs> of control, baby. And if you don't think God wants that, there's no mistakes. Neither one of them are a mistake today. You know, that's when you know it's supposed to be. When when I couldn't get, there was no way I was supposed to get pregnant with Jonathan. I had a doctor. I got so tired of the first one telling me he didn't know what was wrong with my body and the tests were all coming up negative. I got a second opinion. He said the same thing until the second visit. And then he was so shocked he almost fell on the floor when he was looking at the results. Now, we don't know why he was hiding in there so long that he wasn't showing up, but he wasn't. And so, you know, and I was mad one more time because, wait a minute, you told me I couldn't be pregnant, you know. And uh, they've been the biggest gifts in my life today because somebody like me doesn't deserve, you know, doesn't deserve to be a mother. You know, I don't deserve that. You know, I don't deserve to be a wife today. I don't deserve these two men in my family, you know, to be a part of their family. But if we didn't have the programs of Al-Anon, Alateen, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, we wouldn't have that today anyway. Because that's what gave me my life today. This program is, um, you know, we went through some hard times like John was talking about. And the thing that always sticks out more than anything else is just don't run. It may not be an official slogan, but it is for me. Because if I just don't run, I'm going to find the answers. And I'll understand after it's over with why the thing happened the way it did. And there'll be the knowing that maybe I don't have to repeat that same thing again and I can find out what the patterns are and maybe we can change them. But see, if I run, it's just like I did out there. There'll never be any solutions and I'll be looking for it in all the wrong places. Thank you for my life.